I really, I really loved your book, by the way. And uh, I, I thought it was very beautiful, very eloquent. Um, and I, I really like the, um, I like the combination of this very intimate personal observations with sort of philosophy and, uh, and uh, high abstraction. And yeah, the book was really for me, um, an attempt to see the experience as a whole, the, hmm. the becoming a young chess player and being highly driven to win. So developing yeah. this strong competitive urge, which was also about advancement and identity and personal growth. Hmm. And then at some point, partly through becoming a father, partly through just growing up, you know, begin, beginning to realize there were other ways to live your life, you know, that it wasn't yeah. just about your next competitive victory. Um, yeah. So that was the book in some ways is making sense of those different impulses. On the one hand, the natural competitive urge to win and the excitement mm. of all that. Yeah. Then sort of saying goodbye to it as well. Sort of yeah. Fun well, I noticed that there's this kind of paradox in your character, right? This chess being extremely hyper-competitive and almost warrior-like. And actually what, what really matters to you is, is, is the more carrying aspect of, of, of life on some level. Possibly, yeah. Um, so I, as you probably know, you know the, the warrior archetype is partly about a kind of sublimation. It's partly about hmm. uh, finding something that's worth living for and focusing all your energy on that and mobilizing hmm. as if it were for that end. So, so that that spirit of you know single-minded attention, um, I you know I've got a lot of respect for it. A lot, I see it in people. I, I see its power. I see how it can forge great progress. I see how it can cut through a lot of noise. Um, you know, I admire it, and I think it's a necessary energy in the world. I also think there's more to life, and um, that something somewhere along the way that ceased to make as much sense to me, that desire. It was, I remember one time being in a hotel room in Spain, and I mentioned this in the book, and just sort of trying to sort of get ready for the next game, trying to find that warrior who wanted to win and wanted to win the tournament and beat the guy next. And I just noticed that uh, that wasn't me anymore. Uh, I still respected mm -hmm. it. I could still just about pretend to be that person. Um, but I began to think there are bigger battles to be fought and won, so. Do you think um, being a full-on warrior has more to do with the grace of learning how to lose in some sense or learning how to be broken or learning how to um, lose gracefully? Because none of us sort of rise to the extreme, you know, image of ourself, right. you know, become the divine double. Uh, there's a word that... Um, John Verveke was using. And so we always fall short of that on, on, on a human level. And, and becoming human in some sense has to do with failure as much as as well. Right. Yes. So there's, as you probably know, in, in the book, The Moves That Matter, uh, there is a little bit of an anti-heroic side to it. Uh, it's partly about me coming to terms with the fact that I was never going to be world champion. Uh, and, and I didn't really ever try or ever have a very serious chance at that. But there were maybe moments of inflection when after a particularly big tournament or a great run, I might have got ideas that, oh, maybe I can go all the way. Um, but at some point, you kind of reach your limitations. You play people and you know that that was no accident that you lost that game. You know, you may learn, you may play a bit better next time, but there are clear limitations. And 
I think that's true in almost any dimension of life. You know, better philosophers, better activists, better fathers. You know, I think it's it's something about growing up that you you come to appreciate your strengths and weaknesses and get to know yourself a bit better as a result. Um, for me in chess, it was something about letting go of that ultimate desire to be more at ease with what had happened. Right. Is it also something to do with at one point deciding to let go of being a specialist in one field? I know in my 20s, I wanted to be a songwriter. It was like I was driven to that. It was the only thing I, I cared about. And then at one point, I, I, I came to the realization that you know, I, you know, I got married and I, all these other things happened to me, which made it impossible to be so um, one pointedly devoted to that one goal. And my life became more diverse and rich, but, but uh, I, I couldn't concentrate on that one thing to the degree that I, I wanted to. So is but that? You, yes, that's very pertinent because uh, it reminds me of um, the quotation, I think by Joseph Campbell, uh, you know, who asked, which myth are you living by? Yeah, And uh, I think in the case of my younger self, this single-pointed attention, this mobilized the will and the heart and the soul and the mind to get as good as possible at this one thing, chess, um, that was very much part of the story. It was about, let me show the world that I can focus. Let yeah. me show the world that I can dedicate myself to this through discipline. And there's a lot of self-love in that, uh, mm. for good and bad. You know, there was a sort of genuine discipline and formation of character. With, you know, without chess, that wouldn't have happened. On the other hand, you know, that monomania, that sense that A, I was really important, B, the game is really important, and C, the next game and the next move really mattered. Um, these were all kind of part of the myth. You know, and at some point, you begin to realize uh, you're, you're telling the story of yourself. And there are other ways of telling that story. Um, so yes, marriage was part of it. Um, doing, you know, my, my educational activities was part of it. Chess was always a kind of plan B, uh, even when I didn't really have a plan A. You know, it was like, I didn't know what plan A was yet, but I just knew that chess wasn't it. It was more like what I was doing when I wasn't doing something else. Interesting. I was thinking as you were talking about my recent discussion with, uh, with Zach and, and John, and we talked about this notion of the divine double. And towards the end of the conversation, um, uh, Zach was mentioning that the divine double is multiple. It's not, yeah. it's yeah. not just one. It's not, you're not just one person. You're, you're many different people. Right. Um, you're many different archetypes that you're trying to become, and they're often in conflict with each other. Absolutely. Uh, so maybe when you're younger, you're focused towards just that one, and then when you get older, you 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 have this you have a wider view of. I, I so I mean, we, we you know, I, I think that's that sounds roughly right, and um, I, I actually I, I watched that conversation, and I know that quite well, and the, the notion that the psyche is plural is worth just taking a while to sit with because. Um, it's plural in several different ways. Mm. Zach's speaking at quite a sort of arch archetypal, maybe post-union kind of way. Yeah. Um, and he's trying to say that I think once you go into the, into the psyche more deeply, you find that there are these competing energies. Um, and then the question is, well, who is observing them? Who's mediating between them? Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing? Is the self just that conversation? between your, for example, your warrior, your wizard, yeah. your, your dysfunctional child, your, 
you know, whatever mm-hmm. else. You're your masculine consumer. and feminine. Mas- but even, but even more basically, your consumer yeah. and your shopper, you know, your uh-huh. cleaner and, you know, the, pa- the parts of you that are not so, you know, exalted uh, or mysterious. Yeah. And they're all kind of battling it out to be who you are. And sometimes it feels like the right version of yourself prevails and sometimes it doesn't, you know. Uh, but, but what was, what was there, what, what I, where I think Zach and John's conversation was going uh, at least that's where my mind was taking it, was um, you know, this question of the witness, you know, who is observing this plural psyche? Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? Is the psyche just plural? Is it, are we merely a conversation? Mm-hmm. Or is there a sense in which someone's witnessing that conversation or something? Or... Right. This got me intrigued, you know. Yeah. Well, I remember the, the mystic Gurdjieff says, man is legion. Uh-huh. But he also said there should be one sort of central controller who's looking at those other multiple personalities and, and is in control and saying, you should do this or you shouldn't do right. this. Otherwise, we get swept away, right? We get, and yet, we get that, lost in the chaos. Know, true, true. And yet, uh, that looks, looks scarily like a kind of old-fashioned view of a Cartesian self who's mm, in charge yeah. of everything, right? Yeah. So I think the view, I think it might be more mystical than that. It might be that those archetypal cells that are somehow in our psyche conversing among themselves, competing and collaborating in various ways. I suspect the holding pattern for them is something transpersonal. Um, it may even be spirit in some sense, uh, or there are lots of words for it being, or, you know, uh, God or, you know, but, the, but something that's not merely personality beyond something beyond the personality. Right. That seems very important that it seems to me that we, that there's a need to connect with that uh, in the modern times where we're, we're so obsessed with personality or so, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you mentioned the spiritualized book. I think my favorite single line, perhaps there there are several uh, about what spirituality is, was from the Buddhist psychoanalyst, Mark Epstein. Mm -hmm. And he says, spirituality is whatever takes you beyond the personality. Yeah. I find that quite astute. Um, mm. And it stayed with me a little bit. Mm. Because I guess the personality, you can develop it. Um, you can develop it a lot, but it still remains a prison if you don't go beyond that on, on some level. Yeah. And what's beautiful is, I mean, I can't speak from personal experience as such, but I think somewhere in my book, I also mentioned this. Um, you know, there's a, quite a well, well-worn line that says you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Hmm. And the, the contention is that somehow the self has to be constructed and coherent to some extent before it's hmm. deconstructed. Yeah. And, and if you go straight towards deconstruction, you just have this chaos. And, um, and I think that line is good, but what's, what a little twist on it, I think, is that um, you find that when you meet the nobodies, Mm-hmm. Uh, as it were, the, the, the advanced spiritual practitioners, the, the people considered wise, yeah. and they actually have radiant personalities. It's just that it's sort of not self-consciously held anymore. It's sort of, it's, it's there, but it's no longer, um, it's no longer a project. You know, it's, it's no a, longer fear-based. Uh, fear-based, and it's not, it's not trying, it's not adapting to the world. It's not, they're not using this personality as a kind of tool to filter out experience. It's more mm-hmm. like once they've gone beyond the need to do that, 
they still show up with their own quirks and yeah, you know, um, yeah. So, well, I think at the risk of sounding sentimental, it's it, it everything. I guess the most developed being would be the one who's just at service to the world in 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 love, uh, if I could say that. Yeah. Well, quite. Although, like you say, the risk of sentimentality. Yeah. Where you know where are we with that? Because um, yeah, I find myself wanting to say things like uh, love is a fundamental significance. Find out what you can serve, and so forth. But then we live in such a self-conscious culture that I also yeah. think, well, that sounds a bit worthy, you know. Yeah, and love has such a, a kind of gross. When we talk about love, it has a sentimental flavor to it. Uh, whereas there's a fierceness to it there's a directness to it there's a, you know there's a softness there's both aspects i think yes it doesn't yes. have and to I mean, be doesn't have to be sentimental or sappy or not at all for in the sense that i i mean or in the sense of the person you're talking about who has embodied that yeah. no no i mean i think love properly understood is that which brings us to tears you know i think it's the feeling we have when we sense we've given our all and you know, are deeply grateful and these kind of feelings of self-overcoming. Um, but I'm also reminded of the beautiful quotation by Martin Luther King about love and power. You probably know it, but, you know, in essence, he speaks about the, the problem with the world being that we've, we've this defined and understood power to be sort of the absence of love and, and love to be the absence of power as if they were somehow polar opposites. Didn't he call it soul power or something like that? Yeah. Uh, possibly that may be somewhere else, but, but he has a famous quotation that I, that's uh, inspiritualized and I might even, I might even have put it in the, the moves that matter because I like it so much, but he just says the challenge of our time is, is bringing love and power together mm, um, uh, and figuring out what that means. Uh, and it's an ongoing project, but it's, it is about what does it mean to love and serve the world at the yeah. moment? That's, yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I thought that might be a good segue to talk about your, let's say your activism or your interest in, in kind of um, bringing, uh, bringing spirituality into politics. Uh -huh. um, so I wanted to ask you about that, partly because it's a weakness uh, in, in my own life is that I, I, I tend to be apolitical right. and I, I tend to think that's a weakness of, of my mind. And maybe you can help me with that. How do how does spiritual how do we bring spirituality into actual like political action? Um, right. Well, um, I've been thinking about this for at least five years now, and um, the first thing I would say is that I find I think that without without wanting to finesse the term too much, um, having used the word spirituality for several years. I began to realize there was something problematic, not about the reference to the spiritual, uh, not about spiritual practice or spiritual experience um, or even spiritual knowledge or beliefs, but spirituality as a complex composite noun is actually a deeply problematic term. It's misleading. Yeah. You say spirituality, you're placing it in the world of tables and chairs as a thing that exists in the world with its own objective reality. It also has a Gnostic flavor, doesn't it? It's dividing spirit from matter. Or, right. There's that uh, too. And, the, and people get concerned. People get concerned about it because it, um, they, they're concerned about spiritualism and, and spirits and metaphysical uh, 
features of the term. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing to say is that I tend these days to refer to spiritual sensibility and the challenge of cultivating that. What does it mean to have spiritual sensibility? And by that, I mean a kind of feature of how we are disposed to be, um, to what extent do we push our inquiry to the, the, you know, our cosmological framework as a whole, our deepest values, our strongest and most resonant experiences. Mm. Um, so when I say spiritual sensibility, I mean a kind of feature of how we relate to the world. And I don't think that kind of sensibility is in any sense controversial. It, all, all, the, all that is required to have spiritual sensibility is to be interested in the meaning of life. Yeah. And to be interested in the cultivation of virtue and to be interested in uh, the nature of reality. Yeah. And most people have these things. It's just that at any given moment, they have them to a greater or lesser extent. But religion seems to be the thing that's problematic these days. I mean... Right, right. So, so yes. And um, uh, when I was doing the Spirituality Project, there was an anthropologist called Matthew Engelk in the room in one of our workshops. And I'll never forget the moment where we were floundering around with definitions and, you know, what is it about spiritual and why, spirituality? Why is it a problem? And he says, well, guys, um, the word spiritual has a history, and that history has a politics. Mm. Um, And this is the heart of the matter. Spirituality is closely related to religion, which is deeply political and historical as an institution. Um, So we've come a bit off the original question, so let me try and weave this back to that. Okay. About the relationship between the spiritual and the political. it's like this, um, if you, if you, without getting too deep into the diagnosis of the world, we have a certain kind of political economy in advanced Western world. We have um, a certain kind of social imaginary, which is something to do with consumerism and individualism and mm-hmm. personal freedom and ownership. Um, it's about nation states, it's about legal systems. You know, we have certain notions of what's normal yeah. Um, and we've also gone through a historical period where we decided that the ideological battle was somehow won and that, and that liberal democratic capitalism broadly conceived was somehow the answer. The end of history. Um, right. So I sometimes yeah. even joke on the end of history that we're all Fukuyama's children, right? Mm-hmm. And I obviously I don't mean that literally, but I just mean that um, you and I and many people of sort of similar age mm-hmm. grew up um, thinking that we may have reached the end of history, or at least at least that was a contention, yeah. at least it was a possibility. Um, I'm not sure I ever really bought it, but clearly that's not the case today. Right? Well, also, can I just interject? Also, we ha- we've gone through postmodernism, which has been a critique of everything. So, yeah. so we believe, but we don't believe. There's a kind of like. There's right. the modern project, and then Zach calls it the, uh, I, I think he called it the most tragic, right? Most tragic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, there's, there's too much to talk about, but the way I would, yeah. the way I would try and um, complete the initial point is that um, what changed really was uh, waking up to the influence of ecology, technology, and finance. Uh-huh. And we could get lost in that. But in essence, uh-huh. ecological constraints, ecological collapse, uh, finance sort of subverting, you know, we think of the economy and your kind marketing version is like the market stall. 
where people are trading goods and services and some are getting prosperous and some are having their needs met, right? That's your kind of folk capitalism. Yeah. But what we have today is something more like surveillance, extractive, kleptocratic, plutocratic, mm. um, data-driven, um, inequality-driving, socially corrosive capitalism, right? Yeah. So it's not necessarily the underlying logic of the market that's problematic. It's something about what this beast has become. Mm. And then on top of that, you have the influence of technology, which is implicated in both ecology and in finance. Um, but in essence, technology is now changing within generations rather than just between them. So you have these destabilizing influences, right? And in that context, it feels like the modernist project, the project that said, look, we'll have nation states, we'll have a free market, um, the individual has certain rights, we'll have private property, everyone will be all right, go about your business, right? That world is sort of broken. That no one, that yeah. story has been proven to be inadequate. Yeah, especially today with coronavirus. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't want to bring that in too much, but but well, that seems to be giving us a, 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 a view of our limitations on all levels. It's like right. so incredible. Corona, it, it is incredible. And Corona, I'm happy to come to that in a second. That is definitely a reckoning. Yeah. Um, the reckoning, though, prior to that, even just, you know, look closely at the climate science and, and what it's asking of us politically, and you realize it's going to be extremely difficult to avoid uh, much worse ecological mm. cascading collapse. Right, right. Yeah. Look closely at the fact that the tech giants from Silicon Valley are now so powerful that, in effect, the public realm is now controlled by private actors. Right? And then look closely at how, how finance serves the democratic system and keeps perpetuating it in the way things are funded. Now, none of these points, I hasten to add, are coming from a particularly socialistic, communistic perspective. Mm. Coming mm. from someone who, you know, I'm fairly political, but to be honest, I couldn't really care who gets elected tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. It's a bit more like, I want people to be kind of sane and less deluded. Mm. And I think there's a lot of delusion baked into the political system. So when you ask me, you know, where does the spirituality come in? It comes in about getting beyond systemic delusion, sort of seeing mm -hmm. into the problems of the world. But it's also about renewal. So it's about where are the resources, conceptual, experiential, solidaristic, relational, um, imaginative resources going to come from to survive and thrive for the next 100 years and beyond. Uh -huh. And they're going to come from deep places, right? Yeah, indeed. And trusted places. Mm -hmm. And they'll be spiritual and to some extent religious too. Yeah. Well, I was I was thinking that. I was thinking that uh, people are talking about the end of religion. I, I feel like we're at the beginning of religion on, <laughs> um, in some level. Well, this is interesting because I, I've, I've, my views on this have kind of evolved as I've grown up. Um, about six or seven years ago, when I back began the spirituality project at the Royal Society of Arts in London, mm -hmm. just to give a bit of context, that's a relatively conventional enlightenment organization. And by conventional, I mean that in sort of an intellectual, cultural sense. It's kind of a cutting edge of the establishment, but still the establishment. Yeah. And it's also fairly rationalistic and even a bit technocratic. Mm -hmm. um, and in that context, I managed to raise the funds to create this project on uh, rethinking 
spirituality on the basis of new understandings of human nature, that human beings are significantly more socialized, significantly more automatic, sufficiently more, significantly more embodied than we previously thought. And by that I mean cognition is not, not deliberative and rational. It's something much more about an organism trying to get by in his group and achieve his goals and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, all, of, all of which is to say, these new theories about what the human being is, I thought, should change our idea of what the spiritual life was about. And at that time, I confess, I did that because I thought religion was on the way out. You know, yeah, I did that right. because I thought, yeah. like, all of this old-fashioned religion, how absurd and quaint it seems now. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had a bit of a, you know, a transformative set of encounters with lots of people. Some very devout Christians became very close friends, for example. Um, my wife's religion, my wife's Hin- Indian and Hindu, Right. Um, I began to look at that differently as a result too. Intellectually, I'm relatively Buddhist. The books I'm drawn to are a bit more about mm-hmm. understanding the finer points of experience in the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then because I've been to university for about seven or eight years, I'm quite skeptical. You know, I'm quite... Not, yeah. not particularly credulous. I want to... So that mixture of experiences made me think a little bit differently about religion. Namely that, uh, you know, we have this, this extraordinary historical gift yeah. of these resources and traditions and institutions and practices. And the idea that that's all kind of old-fashioned hogwash yeah, is no. immature as hell. Like, well, I feel that's immature. I, I was listening to uh, this rabbi... Uh, on YouTube that my li- my wife likes to listen to. And he was talking about following the Torah. And I was thinking about how difficult that must be. Like what a, what a challenge it is to follow a religious, like a, a religious path, you know, yeah. deeply. Yeah. And we're almost too superficial to do this. Or I shouldn't say we, but the, av- the average North American or, or, or European we think we're so intelligent and wise and, and, and advanced, but we couldn't possibly follow the Torah, you know? <laughs> anyway, um, well, so there's this extreme depth that, that comes along with following a religious path, um, I, you know, fully. And I I, 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 I very much I fail agree. at doing that, even though I, I try to, you yeah. know. But, but the, irony, Andrew, the, the irony of that, I think, is that before you look too closely at it, it can look as if, the barrier to entry to experiences and practices and community and tradition is sort of surrendering your intellect, right? It can look to some people like, all right, I kind of like your community. I quite like your songs. I might even have a bit of your wine, but don't give me any of that Jesus rose on the third day stuff, right? But once you get to know the people a bit better and spend a bit more time there, you realize they're not that hung up on the beliefs. You know, it's not, it comes into a more permeating set of experiences in which those beliefs begin to be a bit more resonant and meaningful. But it's not as if everything's driven by them, at least not in the more liberal churches that I've uh, observed. Um, But I could also say it also appears that there's a lot of dead religion out there that's just just propositional and uh, and dogmatic and unbearable. And uh, I agree. So I uh, I, I think living religion – I mean, I, when I said religion is going to come back, I, I, I don't mean that in a positive sense. I mean that it's like, it's both, right? Um, a right. kind of cultish spirit seems to be, well, will arise in all of this chaos that we're yeah. in well, right now, but also also different communities of sense-making and... and 
Sense making is you don't like that word. I, 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 what was your word for sense making? I was trying to remember what, what it was. There was. Another. I can't remember. It's funny. You're the second person today to tell me I don't like that term. It must be somehow out there. But I'm. It was I, a tweet. I, it was I, a tweet. I think, I think I'm intelligibility. I, I kind of. Mm. Yeah, I find the, the, the cha- we have a challenge of intelligibility today to make to make sense of the world world. But when people turn it into sense making, um, you know, good luck to them. It's fine. It's not my concerned yeah. to be dabbling in other people's languages but um for me sense making sounds a bit phony uh, sounds a bit intellectual it sounds a bit like oh yeah we'll just do this and do this and we'll make sense and that's gonna yeah you know, it turns it in, yeah. it makes it sound like a practice and i guess i'm i don't mean to be convinced that it really is a practice uh perhaps it could be perhaps i just don't have the experiences that uh-huh. a sense making process properly understood may be worthy of that name hmm. um I haven't yet experienced it yet, though, yeah. Hmm. Um, uh, but I don't know if I answered your original, original question fully, but um, the way well, I... Sorry. You were just going to say that I'm, in terms of whether religion's coming back, it's tricky, right? Because it depends on who you're talking to and how old they are and what they've been through. And um, For some people, religion is still a big allergy. You know, it's still a... Religion still means a potentially coercive source of authority who will take away your freedom. Um, and what I realized quite recently, actually, uh, and this, this is where the two worlds intersect a little bit, the term spirituality, it's sometimes even called spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. yeah, and the thing that's interesting about that is it's an absurd expression, right? It's like being um, healthy but not medical or you know, learning but not through education or something like that. And it's got this kind of deinstitutionalized feel to it. Well, I guess we need to define what religion means like to us and, and what it really means, um, yes. uh, you know, rather than just being Christianity or Islam or, you know, what does religion well, really mean? I mean... Yeah, I mean, you have other authorities there. You have, um, you know, Religio, and I heard Zach and um, John speaking about that before. Uh, Religio often meaning sort of to bind, bind together or um, the need for communal practices which which lift up the spirit and lift up the spirit, but also give you a kind of commitment device and reinforce your discipline and give you a focal point and renew your renew your commitment um, that give you a certain tempo to existence that structures your time and attention that gives you clarity of purpose, yeah. that gives you social support. You know, lots of things about religion are fabulous. And if you don't have that, it you have a perverted version of that. Right. Often, or usually, or maybe always. Um. Right. It can manifest in other ways. But here's the, the point I wanted to make, and it's a, it's, a, it's a point I haven't really articulated publicly before, so it's worth getting it right, but it's like this. Why is it that some people are so allergic to the term spirituality. And there are several reasons, but there's one that I would add, which is that spirituality is really liberalism's attempt to have a spiritual life without religion. Uh, right? uh, yeah. it's, it's liberalism's way of saying, we can have all the good stuff that you mentioned, all the good experiences. Yeah, without the, the commitment. Growth, without the commitment, without the place-based activities, without the family and community commitment, without the service, we're going to do the stuff that we enjoy because we're free agents and we can create our life however we want. Mm. 
That's interesting because that's all bound up in the Protestant, the whole Protestant notion of of just you can make it up as you go along, or you can have a direct relationship to God, and and uh, you can have it all right. You don't need the church. You don't need the doctrine. You don't I, need. The, I, I I'm on you know even more on the edge of my competence zone than usual, but on theology, I I couldn't be sure, but I imagine there are those who would say that one of the things that makes Protestantism distinct is that it's there's a kind of sense-making capacity conferred on the agent, mm-hmm. okay. but it's not completely untethered from institutional support or practice or sure. even community. But um, maybe in it, it's in its pathological form, maybe it has a very good aspect to it, the self-critical aspect, but it is in pathological form. It, it leads to a kind of do-it-yourself spirituality, uh, consumer spirituality, where you just get a bunch of techniques and you, you stitch them together in any patchwork that you like, and then you have a nice time, but right. you, you don't go very deep. Right. So here's, here's where this point needs to be understood fully, I think, because um, when I was a bit younger, I would have thought, well, what's wrong with that? You know, like, Pick and mix, great. I'll have an eclectic view. Why can't I take the best of the best? And um, why can't I trust myself to forge it and um, build my own life around it? Mm-hmm. So that's a good question. And then you say to them, well, look, that is the essence of much of the liberal project. That's How- a blank slate ideology, isn't it? I mean, well, it's not just a blank slate. I guess the point I'm making is that there's a connection between the individual desire to do that and liberalism's failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that I mean these problems I mentioned earlier of, of technology controlling the public realm, private actors controlling the public realm, cascading ecological collapse, and kind of financial overreach in every aspect of our life, leading to socially corrosive inequality, democratic breakdown, and so forth. Those are on liberalism's watch, right? Mm-hmm. So when the person says, I want to do these things, that's still caught up in the liberalist, liberalist, sorry, liberal imaginary. It's still caught up in this idea that somehow being free in the private realm as a private agent to create your own spiritual life is absolutely fine because that's how we do things now. Yeah, the myth of freedom. Society, no, it's not working, right. But the answer is it's not working very well. It's destroying yeah. society. It's destroying the social fabric. It doesn't mean there's nothing in it. It doesn't mean you go back to old-time religion and listen to the minister. Yeah. But it does mean think twice. The question is maybe um yeah, so so how do you how do you how do you have a spiritual or let's say religious life in the in the 21st century? That's kind of your question, isn't it? Um my question really is how do we bring matters of fundamental concern to bear on to, in the public realm, but in a way that connects in the public better, realm. Mm. In a well, but, but that word "public realm" is often used to avoid politics. I guess I mean, in a way that has a bearing on the design of public policy. Mm. So, to give you an example, um, there's a big debate within economics about whether uh, economic growth is sustainable. You know, whether mm-hmm. in order to, you know, cope on a finite planet, some believe that we can progressively uh, make economic production cleaner with green energy and renewable materials and that actually the 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 build the sort of the growth of gross growth sorry the gross domestic product yeah yeah, the perpetuation and 
continued growth of GDP, gross domestic product, um, is possible. And that we, and not only is it possible, but it's sort of essential. So the green growth advocates, and, and that actually, that theory to some extent um, is the basis for the Green New Deal, which is a big political mm-hmm. paper in the US. And, um, and Still based know, on growth. Mm. Right, still based yeah. on growth. And, and it gets to the question of, what exactly is going on there? What is this growth doing spiritually? Mm-hmm. In what sense is it conferring reality on something? Mm-hmm. In what sense does it make us feel real or make life meaningful? Do we actually need it? Um, and the reason that question matters is that uh, I think when you look at the, the best models, and, and Tim Jackson, I'm, I'm associated with a, a university center here at the University of Surrey called the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. Mm-hmm. And the argument we have is not, it's not anti-growth. Again, it's not coming from a place of bring down these terrible capitalists. Mm-hmm. It's saying, look, look at the data, look at the evidence. It appears that there are, there's a strong connection between one particular kind of economic growth and ecological degradation. This is, we've known this for a long time. It's continuing. The link is there. To what extent can you decouple them, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the debate goes that, there's no doubt you can decouple it in a relative sense so that every given unit is a bit cleaner and a bit better than the previous one. But there is a big argument over whether you can reduce it in an absolute sense and decouple it such that in the globe as a whole, we can carry on growing and reduce, uh, for instance, emissions, especially carbon emissions. Okay, let's go back to coronavirus then maybe because... Well, but hang on, if you don't mind, Anu, just... just sure, sure, excuse me, I, I'm just... Because it's necessary to make the, the problem with the work that I do and the work a lot of the people you speak to do is to connect sort of disciplines and paradigms and context and, yeah. and epistemologies. It takes a bit of time, right? Because yeah. you've got to unpack the stall in both worlds and then you forge the relationship and then you analyze the relationship. <laughs> but in this case, I'm just saying that if you take the growth debate, it would appear that the argument will be fought and won at the level of persuasive um, policy reasoning, like mm-hmm. this will this if we have green growth, we'll have this number of jobs, yeah. and we'll have um, you know uh, lower emissions, and this will be a good policy outcome, right? Yeah. But if you have it at a more existential level, about what are you actually living for? What is the good society? What is the good life? Right. It, it's very far from clear that the growth model is the. But way that's not even in a part of the discussion, is right. it? It's right. just right. about it's it's just about let's say a building a, a engineering the utopia, right? And it's not a, it's not about what's the meaning of this of of our lives like. Mm-hmm. And people exactly. assume if you just build the utopia, then we'll just all figure out what the meaning of life is. But I I, I feel like even though there's a coronavirus, I'm I'm in a nice little house in the in a French village, and I'm totally in a utopia, right? But you know, I still have struggles, <laughs> you know. No, so, sorry, well, sorry to make it personal. I just mean right. that. that, uh, that no, uh, let's, let's come to the personal. Deep answer. existential shit is, 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 it is, is what, it matters. It matters and, it, and it's been lost in the public realm. That's the kind of point. And the, the language of the spiritual is a way of saying, look, think, think of your fundamental questions of what I call in the book, um, love, death, self, and soul which is, you know, think of questions of being, becoming, uh, beyondness. Yeah. And um, I forget what the fourth one is. But anyway, 
but think of these, these fundamental processes in life and where are we with them? Now, we're not going to resolve that. We're not going to like say, okay, here's the meaning of life and therefore we live like this. Yeah. But we do have to structure society in a way that is responding to ultimate questions of meaning and purpose. But part of the problem with liberalism, and I was and I still am a functional liberal, by the way. It's not as yeah. though, you know, I still love the freedom that liberalism has conferred. I'm just becoming more aware of its cost. Yeah. Um, well, its cost is a kind of superficiality where you're, you don't meditate on, on death, for example. I don't mean to be heavy, but, you know, we're, we're in a situation right now where a lot of our elders are, are going to die. Uh, it's time um, to talk about the virus, right? I, I'm sorry, it just keeps coming up because, right. because there, it's a there. subtext to all these things you're talking yeah. about. It, it is, it is. So um, it is the kind of elephant in the room, as it were, uh, except it's much smaller than an elephant. It's tiny microparticles yeah. that are causing the problem. Um, right. So the virus. Um, so the, President Macron last night I, I, uh, just told us that we're at war against uh, the virus. So first of all, I thought, oh, Jesus Christ. It's like, uh, he's, are you trying to be um, like De Gaulle or something and using this outdated rhetoric? I think that the, the whole system is so stupid on a spiritual level, right? Right. I mean, so the, we're at war against the virus. It seems to be the opposite is true. We're, 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 we're going to have to figure out how to make peace. cooperate, with, make peace with each other. Right. Anyway, but well, um, sorry for the it, rant, but that's okay. That's okay. I'll let you speak. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one for many reasons, but I mean, um, there's a lot going on, right? So there's there's perspectivas. Well, I, I tell you what, to loop it back, best way of doing this, one of your previous discussions with Zach, uh, I believe he spoke a little bit about the educational metacrisis. Yeah. And he spoke a little bit about four main questions he feels that are defining of our time. So the kind of metacrisis distilled into four questions. Those are very much his, but they partly came about through conversations we, we'd had. Um, and the four questions really are what's going on, roughly, which is a question of sense making or intelligibility. Mm -hmm. There's a question of uh, are we up to it, which is basically about capability. Then there's like who's in charge and who gets to decide, which is a question of legitimacy or Zach calls it legitimation sometimes, quoting Habermas. And then finally, there's kind of meaning or what's it all about? What are we trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. Now, these four questions can be superimposed on the virus. Sure. Do you want to go through them? Do you, yeah. That's very yeah. interesting. So I would say the intelligibility question, what's going on, is that we're doing that work reasonably well as a species, I think. Uh, it could be better, um, yeah. but there is a great deal of sense-making going on. Um, and the challenge is not to rush to judgment about what is a good and bad response. Um, but nonetheless, the problem there is, while you're making sense of things, what do you do, right? You can't wait for a month to figure out, to get all the data you need to make the fully informed judgment. You have to make a decision often with incomplete knowledge in the context of uncertainty. Yeah. And there the question is, that comes into a question of underlying values. I would say the first instinct should be care. And the first instinct should be kind of caritas rather than veritas. You know, it's like, um, protect what you love and then figure out what the attack is, what the threat is. So personally, I think very early on, 
when it became clear this was a new kind of infectious disease, a virus that was fatal for a small percentage of the population, that would grow exponentially over time because of the early patterning of yeah. increase over weeks. They missed the exponential curve, kind of. the. I think well, they weren't I, able yeah, to deal with that. Or... Yeah, either they missed it or they didn't know what it meant. Or, But I think um, rather than w- waiting to make perfect sense, Mm-hmm. What's going on here is how, do you, how does a human species as a whole deal with conditions of an epistemic uncertainty where we're still looking to authority to tell us what's going on, what do we do? Uh, but we can't do that, really. We can, to some extent, defer to experts, to some extent, look for the most reliable sources. But we still have to figure out for ourselves, do I send my school, son to school tomorrow or not? Yeah. Um, and do I do I go shopping once a week? Is that safe, or should I wait until you know who knows till it's all cleared up? Um, these questions are ultimately ours to answer, but they arise from the question, the crisis of intelligibility of not knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's that's heightened at the time of the virus, but it's there all the time. It's there all the time. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, that's the first thing. The second thing is on capability. There's real questions here about, are we up to it? Now, there's some really good stories here about capability because 3D machines have been mobilized to create new kinds of medical equipment that that wouldn't have been possible a long time ago. Um, There are some signs that vaccination efforts are being accelerated. Um, There's already some evidence about things that we can take to reduce the chance of fatality if we catch it. So it's not as though the human species is, is not mobilizing a capability response. Sure. Any ways we are up to this. We're also planning carefully to flatten the curve and reduce impacts on hospitals and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it begs the question of more generally, are we... Wisdom. Up? Not yet, Andrew. Not yet. We're not at wisdom yet. Okay. That was one of my questions for you. Okay, keep yeah, going. Well, I, did my, I don't know if you know, my PhD was on wisdom. So yeah. we'll happily come to that. But um, on the context, in the context of the virus... The capability question is, are we up to dealing with this in a way that minimizes harm? Now, that's not just about the medical response. It's also about the social and civic society response. For example, enlightened governments would now be doing things like giving a temporary universal basic income to everyone so that there's not people are not going to work and getting infected or going to school and getting infected because they have to to pay their bills, right? Yeah. you, You need to take that problem out of the equation. So there's a capability question that's heightened. Are we up to it? Right? Yeah. Are we going to leave a lot of people behind, even if we solve the problem? You know, people who can't afford to, um, right. you know, pay the bills after, uh, you know, after losing their, losing their, their job. Well, that comes to the next bit, legitimacy, because there are justice questions and fairness questions. Um, the question of legitimacy looms large here because it's about who gets to decide who lives and dies. On what basis, right? Mm-hmm. So the UK government, for example, appeared to make a decision that would would put the elders, especially, and I call them the elders rather than the elderly, because mm, the elders, yeah. Elders, I think right? we need to talk about the elders. I'm just gonna bracket that because they're not the elderly. There are the elders. They're the history of our civilization. Right. That, right. They contain the knowledge. I mean. Totally. You're yeah. looking at, at older people as elders, you know, really. Indeed. And, and yet they're, they're sometimes described in a sort of sense that would make it look like they were dispensable. Indeed, yeah. Um, and the same with underlying conditions. You know, we, we use that term as if 
oh, we're already somehow halfway gone. But actually, you know, I have a, I'm type one diabetic. I have an underlying condition. Uh, I know many of my family does too. And so this virus uh, is a real and present danger to lots of people. And governments are making decisions that will have very direct bearings on who lives and dies. Um, that's a legitimacy question, and it's heightened, mm-hmm. right? Again. And then finally, the meaning crisis, which I'm sure will be the one that interests you the most. Yeah. But there, it's a direct encounter with death, right? Yeah. It's about the fact that here's something that I learned from a conversation with Bonita Roy. I forget the precise context, but you know, the idea that we can prevent death doesn't really stack up. You know, at some level, we're all ultimately going to die. Yeah. And our deaths are, are in some ways a scandalous open secret that, you know, that we are so utterly contingent, so dependent on a beating, beating muscle that could stop beating at almost any time. So what the, what the virus does is, again, heightens that experience. Suddenly it's like, hang on, I didn't think my life was a question mark, but the virus says it might be right? Yeah. yeah. It's a kind of scandal, also a moment of reckoning. And the, one of the reasons your life is at risk is that the global system is so thoroughly interdependent and fragile, really fragile, mm-hmm. such that even if you can show data showing enormous progress on literacy and medical and scientific advances and even prosperity and people coming out of poverty and young kids learning to read and African nations getting better, you can tell an optimistic story of civilization, mm-hmm. yeah. but that data will often obscure the underlying fragility of the system, right. uh, which is about a function of interdependence and a function of uh, complex systems only requiring minor changes to become to create macro major effects. Right, and this makes me think of your critique of our, our critique of liberalism, which tries to hide death at any cost, right? Yeah, um, and I guess if you were, if you, um, your wife is Indian. People who live in India, they burn the the corpse, you know, in the open, so that it's a meditation on on, on death. And um, it seems like this virus, I was thinking, is is forcing us into a meditation on death. If you're feeling that way, you might like this. So when I did the spirituality project, death was one of the themes. Um, and uh, the, the piece of research that I was most taken by was related to a phenomenon known as post-traumatic growth. Yeah. You may have heard of heard post-traumatic stress, right? Post-traumatic stress, everyone knows about it. It's what military people come back with and we mm-hmm. have after trauma and stuff. Um, but post-traumatic growth is a very different phenomenon. It's, it's often people who are close to death, who may have had cancer or may have had an accident, yeah. and they, they survive it, and then they're like, okay, what was I doing all that time? Given that, my, given that I now know my life is so fragile, I think I'll live a bit, more, a bit differently. And, it, and what, it, what the research shows is those who have near-death experiences, um, not so much in this spiritual, I was looking at my body from above way, but more the kind of, I almost died, and I'm not sure I lived the life I wanted to live way. Yeah. If you have that experience, what the research shows is people invariably turn towards a life of more intrinsic value, closer connection to nature and loved ones, their own crafts and pursuits, much less concern for status, much less concern for achievement. Um, but here's the, the killer. Here's the thing that I find very curious about that. It comes about because people realize they almost died and that they were going to die. Yeah. But they knew that already, right? Yeah. This is the thing that's very bizarre. It's as if 
the human being. Well, we know it intellectually, but we we don't have a direct encounter right. with 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 it, or or are able. We're not able to digest it or or, or feel it of, in, in a full on way. And once we do, wow, we wake up. You know. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is one way of seeing the virus is it's a species wide encounter with our individual and shared mortality. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, that could be ultimately a positive thing, although there will be a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartache and pain and literal asphyxiation along the way. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, it's dark and it's a moment of reckoning. Um, it's also something that may pass and be forgotten within six months. Yeah. Um, but I don't sense that at the moment, but it, it's possible. Uh, part of the sense making, part of the intelligibility aspect I mentioned earlier is we don't know how long this is going to last. Um, and that's an unusual situation. We have this feeling that there is a normal reality we have to get back to. Yeah. But I think what this shows is that that normal reality was a kind of fiction. Yeah, the normal reality is a fiction and everything's going to change on some level, even yeah. if everything appears to be somewhat the same. It seems like th there has to be some kind of wide systematic change after this. It just there's just, just no question about that. Well, well, hold on a minute. Yeah, I'm being too optimistic. Well, it's, we it's could go back to being the same idiots that, that we were, uh, you know, always, but we have we have a lot of immunity to change you know robert keegan yeah. speaks a lot about yeah. this and um i wouldn't be surprised how quickly we can hide this under the carpet as it were and get about our business but um one way of seeing this to bring it back to a more religious sensibility is this is a moment of profound disequilibrium mm -hmm. yeah if, if our habit energy and our main patterns society at a societal level are about going through the motions. This is a moment where we're not allowed to go through the motions. We have to change how we live and think and act and reflect. And yeah. th what that reminds me of is why Jesus used parables, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like a different world, but actually yeah. there's a connection. So the connection with Jesus using parables, I'd say is this. Um, going into the historical context he was in, there are some people who believe that it's not that Jesus studied Piaget as such, but that he sort of recognized that there was something, I say recognized, if this is God, then those, this language is a bit absurd, but mm -hmm. there was something about the person as teacher, as spiritual teacher, that he realized that in this heavily historically, religiously loaded time, where you have the Romans and you have the Pharisees and you have the, the practices and the ritual purity and mm -hmm. who's meant to be a Messiah and who's meant to be a rabbi and, comes into all of that context and he doesn't say I am this and this is how things are. He tells lots and lots of stories. Mm -hmm. yeah. And why would he do that? Right. And the claim is at least in some of the research, like in Zen, that, they do the same thing. They, right. It's a little bit like the coins, right? Yeah. So he's deliberately creating this equilibrium because only in that space of this equilibrium can some new understanding emerged, some new, new, new self emerged, some new society emerged. Right. So you could see the virus as a kind of opening up of that disequilibrium, allowing us the time to reflect and withdraw and hopefully transform in some way. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine it'll be both. I mean, I, for some people, we'll go just nuts 
And then other people will, will, uh, you know, it's a chance to actually go on retreat. Like, seems to me like, uh, you know, as, as a practicing Buddhist for 20 years, going on retreat is something where you actually go deeper into life. You know, it's not an escape from life. It's actually, you go deeper into life and, and um, it's a chance to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I so, I mean, it, I fear, for some people, for somebody yeah, who, who we might be relatively lucky in this regard. I think for others, you've got cramped living quarters. Exactly. You, go, you have domestic violence. You have, you know, there are other ways of telling the story. Oh, but, God. I, have, but I mean, uh, certainly in principle, it affords that opportunity, uh, amongst other things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're right to mention that. It, it could just people could retreat into their hell, right? Whereas they they might have had a way out before, yeah. So so yeah. it's it's yeah it's both things. 